The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Luke chapter 12, those of you who haven't been with us regularly or at all, we're going through the Gospel of Luke in your New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels that tell us about the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke is 24 chapters in your English Bible, and we're literally right in the middle of that book now. Uh, Chapter 12, we're going to start there. We're going to go chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 today. And just for the context, actually chapter 12 is really one discourse that Jesus gave at one time. And it's very long. Chapter 12 all the way to verse 59, and then it even goes into chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 13. So really you could say, just in terms of the context, this discourse that Jesus is having with a very large multitude of people starts at Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and goes all the way to chapter 13, verse 9. And then also to set the context, just by way of reminder, Where is Jesus in his ministry at this point? Well, we think his ministry was about three and a half years long, public ministry, from age 30 till 33 or so. The bulk of that ministry was in the area in which he grew up, which was Galilee in the north and Nazareth. And he had a preaching ministry there for over two years where he covered all those villages, scoured the area, preached, proclaimed himself as Messiah, Savior of the world, validated that by doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, ministering to the people, loving sinners, having compassion on those who were sick and needy and the poor. And and as the the loving Savior, he ministered to their needs as well. He had a growing uh, group of disciples or followers or learners who were fascinated with him, appreciated what he was doing wanted to know more, a few probably actually came to believe in him and what he was saying. The majority weren't quite sure, confused about his identity. They liked the miracles. They liked the free food. That was going on for two years up in Galilee. But he was also accumulating enemies because Jesus was the truth. He was incarnate truth, and he spoke nothing but truth. And if you are in the routine of speaking truth, it will offend people. That's inevitable. You can't avoid that. He never compromised on the truth. He was truth. He was God incarnate. And as he spoke truth for that over two years, people were intrigued. Some believed. But then there were also those, a growing resistance was mounting against Jesus Christ, who was incarnate truth. And that was subtle, and it was not seen oftenly, and it was in the shadows, and it was spearheaded by the leadership, the the religious leadership of the Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And from the very beginning of his ministry, they were threatened by Jesus. They were intimidated by Jesus. But they saw the growing crowds who were interested and followed Jesus. So the Jewish leadership, they were also afraid of the crowds didn't want to resist the crowds because the crowds seemed to be following Jesus, endorsing his ministry. So that left them with a dilemma. How do we resist Jesus and shut him down 
while not losing the crowd and going against the tide. So they began to sow seeds of dissension from the very beginning. And we're going to see in the book of Luke, for the rest of the, the, book, the book from chapter 12 to the end, a growing resistance against Jesus Christ from the leadership of the Jews, which would include spearheaded by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. There's also a growing resistance, you have to pay attention to it, by the people in the last six months of his ministry that we see in Luke 12 through 24. The same people that he ministered to, the same people that he loved, the same people that he did miracles for and that he provided for their needs and imparted divine wisdom for them and gave them free food. Always spoke truth, always loving, always the compassionate Savior. And nevertheless, among the thousands of people who were around him, following him, and intrigued by him, there's a growing resistance at a corporate mass level against Jesus, so that finally when he enters in Jerusalem the week before he died, and then he, he gets arrested, he goes to trial, and Pilate says, I find no fault in him, and then the entire crowd cries out for his blood. Crucify him. That didn't happen out of nowhere. That didn't happen without a context. That was the fruit of the seeds of bitterness planted quietly covertly by the Jewish leadership for almost three years. That's how damning, dangerous, and pervasive gossip can be once it takes hold. What just All you got to do is plant the seeds. They'll grow on their own. They're like weeds, the gossip, the weeds of gossip. And so that's the trend we're going to see here in Luke 12 through 24, this growing resistance of the blessed Savior. The sermon today... I'm just calling the basics of true religion, verses 1 through 12, the basics of true religion. Just three main points there that I wanted to give you. The basics of true religion is defined and delineated by Jesus Christ. This is very helpful because it's so simple. It's almost too simple when you read it. Pastor Cliff, what are the basics of true religion? Well, it's right here. Three main things we need to keep in mind. Or, Lord Jesus, tell us the basics of true religion. Because in Jesus' day, the Jews, the Israelites all over Palestine, or the land of Israel, true religion had been shrouded. It had been smothered out. It couldn't be seen clearly. It had been tampered with by the Jewish leadership, by compromisers, by hypocrites, religious hypocrites. And Jesus got, just got finished denunciating them. We saw in chapter 11... Uh, the last part of chapter 11, where Jesus was invited to uh, lunch with a Pharisee, several Pharisees and some Sadducees, and he gave six denunciations, six curses to the Jewish leadership there at that private lunch. Six curses, and all of them had one theme, and he was condemning them, the Jewish leaders, for being hypocrites, for propagating, disseminating false religion, legalistic religion, scriptural, false pseudo-religion that was leading people astray, damning souls for all eternity at a pervasive level all, uh, all throughout the land of Israel, God's chosen people who were being misled by these Jewish leaders who had twisted and perverted true religion. They said they embraced the religion of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they did. They embraced that, but yet they distorted it, and even so subtly, 
twisted God's truth. That's all it takes. And they were leading a mass of people astray. And that infuriated Jesus. He had no tolerance for that. And his greatest anger, greatest judgment, greatest denunciation was for religious legalists, religious hypocrites who use scripture and distort it and then say they speak for God. That, that is the height of hypocrisy and it is the height of blasphemy. So that was the context. So uh, Jesus been ministering to the crowds. Crowds were following. And chapter 11, verse 29 says the crowds were amassing more and more. He's teaching. He's casting out demons. He's accused of casting out demons by Satan himself. Then he goes to this private lunch. He condemns the religious leadership to their face. They are intolerant of that. They are infuriated by that. And from that point on, we, we need to shut Jesus down. We need to find a way to silence him and to kill him. And that's what they're going to try to do for the next nine months. So that just happened. Jesus' private lunch with the Jewish leadership that he, put, that he announced to their face. You are false religionists. And you are damned by God for how you twist his truth and mislead people. So let's pick up at chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, or literally now at that time, or right after this, or meanwhile, when this incident just happened, Jesus leaves the lunch, he denounced the leadership, they disperse like cockroaches to go do more dirty deeds in the shadows. Meanwhile, he comes out of that lunch, and there's, an entour- there's just masses of people who encroach upon him and that's where we are under these circumstances after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another that Jesus began saying to his disciples first of all beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy verse 2 but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known accordingly whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet no, not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered by God. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me, the Lord Jesus, before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is Jesus, it will be forgiven him. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Verse 11, when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So this is how Jesus opens this public discourse where there are thousands of people. Let's go ahead and... Just walk through the text. Like I said, I broke it up into three basic truths here to follow the theme regarding what are the basics of true religion. And ba- here they are. What are the basics of true religion? I'll just give them to you right now. It's fear God. Fear God the Father. 
Not man. Do not fear man. Number two, what else does it mean to be a practitioner of true religion? Number two is proclaim Christ, profess Christ. We'll talk about what that means. So it's fear God the Father, profess Christ, and then finally number three, trust the Spirit, trust the Holy Spirit. All three of those are in the text. God the Father is in this text. If you look at chapter 12, verse 5, fear the one and him. And then verse 6, God, that's God the Father. Jesus is talking about God the Father. That's where true religion starts. And then he talks about himself as the son, which is key to true religion in verse 80. He refers to himself as the son of man. And then he refers to the Holy Spirit twice in verse 10 and then again in verse 12. So... Uh, that is the key to true religion. So what is the key to true religion? You're going around evangelizing and the neighborhood's knocking on the doors like some were doing yesterday at the church or you have an opportunity to talk to a family member or relative who is not a Christian or a colleague at work or maybe your neighbor. At some point, you're going to have to very quickly get into the doctrine of the Trinity of God. God is triune. What does that mean? Tri is three. There are three persons, three distinct persons that make up the one true God of the universe. And God has revealed who those three persons are. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all one God, one entity. They share one essence and one nature. They're not three different separate gods. We don't believe in polytheism. But it is one God, Deuteronomy 6.4, one God, and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons are distinct from one another, Yet they are equal in terms of their essence, nature, their worth to be worshipped. And they all have distinct roles, and many of their roles overlap. So that is the triune God, and here's where Jesus is laying it out. But by the way, the doctrine of the Trinity is delineated and made very clear in the New Testament. It is a revelation in detail of the New Testament. Uh, it is not overtly explicit in the Old Testament, but there were seeds of Trinitarian religion in the Old Testament from the very beginning. Because Jesus' name is never mentioned in the Old Testament and all throughout Old Testament history explicitly as Jesus. But there are references to the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, the coming King. These are all references to Jesus Christ. There were theophanies of Jesus Christ, appearances of Jesus Christ before he was born but not in the form of Jesus, but even the very first, first verse of the Bible. In the, begot, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God, Elohim, God, singular in your English Bible, Elohim is actually the Hebrew word, and it is a plural word. There are times in the Old Testament it is literally translated as gods with an S. Well, why isn't it translated God's there? Because it's a singular verb that governs it, which tells us it is one God, and there's something with a plurality about his nature. And then even in the Psalms, we see that. In Isaiah, we see that, that there is a son who's related to Yahweh, and there's a spirit who's also equal with Yahweh. And so there are pictures and portraits of the plurality and even the triunity of God in the Old Testament, that becomes clear and overt and explicit in the New Testament with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So this is real fundamental. What, is the, what are the basics of true religion? Well, it's theological. There's truth. There's divine revelation given by God, special revelation that needs to be heard, understood, and embraced as prerequisites to embrace the true religion and the true religion of the one God. And at the heart of that is Trinitarian truth, that God the creator and judge of every soul is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that in this passage. We see that all over the New Testament. In other words, you can't embrace the true faith. You can't become a Christian. You can't get baptized if you don't even have an understanding of the basic trinity of God and his very nature. Because you have to understand who the Father truly is and who the Son is and who the Holy Spirit is. As a matter of fact, when you become a Christian, you hear the gospel about Jesus Christ, the God-man. He's not just a man. He's the God-man. He's the eternal one. He's uncreated. He has always existed with the Father. He came down here, lived a perfect life without sin as the Lord, as the sovereign one, gave his life willingly as a substitute for sin, absorbed the wrath of the Father for sin, was buried, and Jesus rose himself from the dead, ascended into heaven, reigns on high as the Lord alongside, equal with the Father. You have to understand that and believe that about Jesus Christ. So God the Father is one with Jesus, is one with the Spirit. They are distinct persons and yet they are one. This is the infinite God. Well, I can't logically wrap my mind around the infinite, almighty, sovereign God of the universe. Good. Nobody can. If you did, you would be God. But this is what he was revealed, and we believe it by faith. So the triune nature of God is fundamental. And by the way, for true religion, uh, Christ, true biblical Christianity is the only religion that believes in the triune nature of God. That's just kind of a basic litmus test for false religion. Cults, they reject the triune nature of God. Usually they reject the full deity of Jesus Christ. In the end, they say he's a created being. And at best, he worked his way to become a God. That's a rejection of biblical triune religion that Jesus lays out here in many other places. When you, oh, by the way, when you, so when you believe in the gospel about the work of Jesus Christ and who he is, and you become a Christian and you become born again and regenerate, and then Jesus commands you as a Christian to get baptized. That's Matthew 28, verse 19. And Jesus said, when you become a Christian, you need to get baptized, meaning dunked in water as a public testimony that you have already been saved. You don't get baptized to get saved. You baptize because you have already been saved. It is a symbol. It's a living metaphor. And in verse 19 of Matthew 28, Jesus is very specific. You get baptized in the name, singular, one name, not names, plural, you get baptized in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who you get baptized. You get baptized in the name of a triune God. One name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. This is true biblical Christianity. So anybody that comes down the pike saying that they believe in God and religion and even the Bible and Jesus, you got to scratch not too hard quickly get to, well, what do you believe about Jesus? How long has Jesus been around? Is he a created being or has he always existed? Is he the ultimate judge or is he just a man? Does he deserve worship? Is he the only one that can forgive sins? Is he equal with God the Father? You need to ask all those questions. They answer all those. They believe in a counterfeit Jesus and that counterfeit Jesus is insufficient to save anyone and they are not truly a Christian. So that's what's going on here and so most false ideologies and religions 
lower Jesus in terms of his nature, his person, his deity, and bring him down. There are others who prostitute or blaspheme or tamper with the doctrine of the Trinity, not by bringing Jesus down and the Holy Spirit down, but by adding to it and elevating others like Roman Catholicism. On the surface, it has an orthodox view of the Trinity, and yet they elevate Mary to equal status with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by making her co-mediatrix and basically co-savior, praying to her, worshiping her, giving her all the adoration. That's blasphemy. And that is tampering with the simple and pure doctrine of the Trinity, the triune nature of God. So we're going to see that in this text. The doctrine of the Trinity, God as one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was not made up and invented by some Greek-influenced people in the 4th century A.D., like some people like to postulate. It's right in the Bible. So let's go back and look at the basics of true religion with that background. Number one, it's fear God, not man. And that would be verses uh, 1 through 7. Under these circumstances at verse 1, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, so keep in mind, Jesus just left a lunch, and now he's, he's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. He's very strategic. He's going to arrive there during feast week, uh, during Passover week in fulfillment of the Old Testament. But he has ministry to do in the meantime. And a lot of that ministry is exposing phonies and controversy. And under these circumstances, at this time, after so many thousands of people, by the way, that phrase, so many thousands of people, myriad is the Greek word. It means tens of thousands. How many? Remember I said in chapter 11, verse 29, that the crowds were increasing more and more? How big was that crowd? Verse 12, verse 1 tells us tens of thousands of people were following Jesus, gathering around tens of thousands. That's literally what it means. Can you imagine an entire football field, stadium, of people. It's, it's okay when it's supposed to be that way. It's planned and everybody has a seat and they're sitting down. There's some order and organization to that, right? That's not what was going on here. These people are coming out of the woodwork from all over then known Israel, following Jesus everywhere he went. And they are crushing in on him. It's dangerous, actually. Text tells us that after tens of thousands of people have gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. That's it was dangerous. This is like a rock concert, and everybody's crushed around. And they're waiting for them to open the doors, and they finally open the doors, and people just crush in and rush in chaotically and literally trample people to death. That is not uncommon. Or a soccer game. Over in Europe, we see that. Crowds are so big and out of control, crushing each other to death. This crowd was crushing. So, what, why were there so many people? Because the word got around. Oh, here's Jesus. Here's the, oh, maybe he'll do another miracle. Maybe we get more food. Maybe people, you know, bring in their relatives that had demons and needed healing. So maybe there were many who were sincere. There are others who heard the rumor, wow, did you hear what he just said to the, did you hear about that lunch at the Pharisee's house? It's like what, the third time he's done that and just blasted him. And no doubt the seeds of gossip that the Jewish leadership has planted, it's doing its work and it's bringing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds probably of naysayers and antagonists 
to Jesus, that crowd is also building up. That's why as he's teaching, we're going to see this in chapter 12, he's teaching publicly and somebody interrupts him. Hey, what about this? And they ask a question, an obnoxious question, an inappropriately timed question, not a legitimate question. It's a, a question to catch him publicly and make him look foolish. See that? Those people are in the crowd as well. So it's a, it's a mixed company in this crowd. But it is crushing in on him. And nevertheless, he begins to teach. He was the master teacher. He was rabbi. That's what rabbi means. He is the master teacher. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, so that's key right there too. Who is he teaching? Even though there are tens of thousands of people in the audience, he is focused like a laser on who he is talking to. He's talking to his disciples. Even though there are tens of thousands of people. Verse 4, he says, my friends. So everybody else that's listening, they're eavesdropping. And he's, he's fine with that. But I am talking to my disciples. Disciple just simply means my followers, my learners. It's not synonymous with apostles. That doesn't mean the 12 apostles. It includes the 12 apostles, but it's more than that. The women that loved him and followed him, they would be in that group as well. But it is a small. He calls them little flock later in this chapter. That means a small group of people. They are the minority. If you're a Christian today living where you are, you're the minority. You're swimming against the stream. That's how it's always been. And that's how it is with Jesus here. So he's only talking to his disciples, to his friends, and he's going to give them a warning because part of what he's doing for the next six to nine months is to prepare his disciples for his departure, specifically to prepare his 12 apostles for his departure so that they can lay the foundation of the church. And this is part of the preparation. And this preparation is warnings. Beware of false religion. Beware of false religion. So that's what he says. That's his warning to his disciples. Last part of verse 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven. Leaven, what's that? That's influence. Leaven permeates and influence little by little, subtly. It's powerful, though. And he's saying beware. So that's another key about how do you embrace and know true religion. You, you've got to know what's false. And you've got to be aware of it. And you've got to put your guards up and be discerning and not uh, an ignorant, clueless, chi immature child tossed to and fro by every false wind of doctrine, says Paul in Ephesians. So we've got to grow in our discernment. We've got to uh, not just learn offense. We also have to learn defense. And that's part of what Jesus is doing is preparing his disciples. Watch out because false religion, it's subtle. Even when you think you know the truth, you can be cut from behind and dissuaded and misled and step in a trap that you couldn't avoid. So be on the lookout and watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he's warning them once again. Hey, I just had lunch with these guys. They are dangerous. They are slick. They are scheming. They are uh, influential. They are impressive. They know the Bible. They are dangerous. They're hard to spot. They are hypocrites. They're influential. Watch out for them. After all, they basically were in charge of the entire religion in this day. So beware of them. And so basically what he does in verses 12 through 7, he says, true religion has to do with fearing God, knowing him the right way, fearing him for the right reason. And the main theme here, the main thing you need to fear about God is he is the judge. 
That's the main thing you need to think about. He is the judge. And that judgment is coming. And it is inevitable. And it is for every human soul. So what's characteristic of unbelievers and people who aren't Christians? I can just tell you. I don't even need to meet them. meet them. I can go up and ask or just tell them. You don't fear God, do you? They don't fear the God of the Bible. They fear other stuff. They fear man. And they fear all the standards and expectations of man. They fear their own agenda and everything. But they don't fear the God of the Bible. It's not just fear God. Somebody in a false religion can say, well, I fear God. They don't fear the God of the Bible. So they don't fear truth. They don't fear Jesus Christ as he is said to be in Scripture. That's what they don't fear. So every unbeliever and every religious person who is not a Christian, they don't fear the true God of the Bible. Paul tells us that in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you can see it everywhere, and you can hear it, if you listen carefully enough, as they mock God, blaspheme God, use God's name for a cuss word, taking God's name in vain, taking Jesus Christ's name in vain. What does that tell you? They have no fear of the true God of the Bible. And yet they should fear God, the true God of the Bible, because because he is the creator. He owns every soul. And then what Jesus emphasizes here, not only is he the creator of every soul and we're accountable to him, there is a a day of accounting coming and that creator is also the judge and no one will escape the judgment of God. And that's the main point here. Uh, In verse 5, you can underline it. Jesus says, this is a command, fear the one. That's the key to true religion. Fear the one. And he names him specifically God in verse 6. Fear God. Fear the one. Fear the one true God. Fear your creator. Fear the judge. He could be your savior, but for now he is the creator and judge of every soul. You should fear him. You should fear God more than anything else that you fear in this life. Do you fear God, the true God of the Bible, more than disease? Do you fear God more than dying? Do you fear God more than COVID? We should. That's what Jesus said. So, And there's three ways, specifically, Jesus says we should fear God. Here they are. The first one is there's going to be public judgment. We should fear the public judgment that is coming for every soul, verses 2 and 3. Jesus said, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. There's going to be a day when God the judge reveals absolutely everything in the world and everything, get this, in your life. Everything. Now, the Pharisees or any false religionist, what are they? They're hypocrites, which means they live a double life, which means they got a lot of secrets in their life that they're trying to hide. That's what a hypocrite does. That is just going to be unveiled. If you're trying to hide stuff in your life, it's coming to the light. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything is going to be exposed. That is a reason to fear God the creator, God the judge. So it's public judgment is coming. Verse 3, accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark, it's not only what you've done, but what you've said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops, even your little secrets that you're sharing. Every single one of us. God knows it all. He sees it all. He's going to give an accounting for it all, and he's going to go public with it. He's going public with everything. You know, here we're in the Silicon Valley and you got all these businesses and their goal is to go public, right? Is that the terminology? Want to go public? If you go public, you have arrived. If you go public, you have prestige. We'd love to go to public. I, I want to go public. I wish we could go public. Well, you can turn that around and tell them you are going public. Everybody's going public. God the Father's going public about you. Really? Tell me more. Okay, I will. Every secret you've had, every dirty deed you've ever done, it's going public. Whoa. 
Are you serious? Yeah, it's right here in the Bible. Jesus said so. That's scary. That's frightening. That doesn't bring guilt. I don't know what else would. Can't hide from God. Can't run from him. That's a good reason to fear God, huh? That's a good reason to fear God. Confess your sin to him and bow the knee and cry out to Jesus. Save me from this coming judgment. And he will. That's the good news because... Going public isn't all bad news because going public is also in verse 8. Look at it. Jesus said, everyone who confesses me before men. That's going public. Every, everybody can go public. Everybody is going public and every else, everybody else can go public. You can go public about Jesus. You can go public before men about Jesus. Verse 8, uh, Jesus is going to turn around. He's going to go public on you. The Son of Man will confess him also before the angel of God in heaven. Verse 9, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is going public about everyone. Whether you believe in him or whether you have rejected him. Public in heaven, but public before the angels, public before all creation. There is no place to hide. Here's a, here, here are the keys to true religion. Fear God. Fear God the creator. Fear God the judge. He is going with public judgment. And then verse 4 and 5 is painful judgment. And that's why we should fear God. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But verse 5, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, that's God, who after he has killed, God does kill God knows when everybody dies. God is the author of death. God determines when every person dies. God is the one who determines how every person dies. He is in control of death. And that's why Jesus said, Fear the one who, after he has killed, he also has authority to cast into hell, into Gehenna, into eternal fire. That is eternal hell. Eternal, conscious, deserved, torment, punishment, Soul and body. And it is coming. For all who reject God by not fearing him. Yes, I tell you fear him. So that's, so you've got public judgment that is coming. You've got painful judgment that is coming. And then finally personal judgment. That's verse 6 and 7. You should fear God, bow the knee to him, cry out to him as your savior. Because th this judgment is going to be very personal. God is not just, you're not going to get lost in the crowd on the, at the throne of judgment. Call you by name, and you're going to be singled out, every single one of us. By name. And all the details. And God is aware and remembers everything, even the minutia and the mundane. That's verse 6 and 7. Jesus says, are not five sparrows, those are little birds, sold for two cents? Little birds in Jerusalem at the time, in the surrounding area. Poor people ate them. You could buy them at the market. A couple for a penny. Mundane, yet not one of these birds is forgotten by God. He remembers everything, all of it, the minutia and the mundane. Verse 7, indeed, the very hairs of your head. Talk about minutia and mundane. This is the omniscience of God. He doesn't forget anything. He knows everything. He remembers everything. Even the, the hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So if you reject God, you have cause for fear. Of the judgment of God. If you bow the knee to God, you don't have cause for fear of his judgment. He will embrace you as a child into his family. And we, he will do that through the Son, which is point number two. What's the key to true religion is confess Jesus, proclaim Jesus, profess Jesus, embrace Jesus. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. 
Keep in mind, Jesus is a Jew. He's a rabbi. He's a master of the Old Testament. These tens of thousands of people have been raised in the synagogue. They've been raised on Genesis through Malachi or Genesis through Chronicles. They know the stories. This is Jewish religion. They know God as Yahweh. There's not a preponderance of details about the Messiah as the heart of their religion in the Old Testament. So Jesus is giving new religion. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this is kind of new information for them. So true religion, embracing God as Yahweh is not enough. In addition to that, you need to embrace me, Jesus Christ, the God-man revealed in the flesh right before you today. The ones that the leadership had rejected. He's drawn a line in the sand, so that's why in verse 8 he says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, confess, a very specific word. Translated also as profess. Another translation, the way it's used is admit. Literally, it's to say the same thing. To say it with conviction and agreement, that you agree with that. To confess. To profess. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me, Jesus, before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. The Son of Man. That's right out of the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7. That, that is in reference to the divine Messiah. Jesus is saying, you need to believe that I am the divine Messiah. Divine. Deity. More than a man. One with the Father. That's what that means. You need to embrace that. This was offensive to the Jewish leadership. They considered it blasphemy. And Jesus said, no, this is true religion. You need to embrace everything that I've said about me. You need to have a proper view of Jesus Christ to be a believer. You need a proper Christology. Your religion needs to be Christocentric, Christ-centered, according to the Bible. That's 1 John 4. Confess. Uh, the one who knows God is the one who confesses Jesus as the one who has come in the flesh, that he's the God-man. So you have to have a proper view of Jesus. Verse 9, but the one who des denies me. And all that means is you don't just reject Jesus categorically. That's true. There are those who just, uh, no, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But it's also rejecting the truth about Jesus. It could be a false religion that says, oh, I believe in Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormonism has the name of Jesus in the religion. But they don't believe in the right Jesus. It's a counterfeit Jesus. That is also included here. You have to have a proper view of who Jesus is. He is the God-man. You need to confess that, profess that, and bow. But what he's saying is you need to bow the knee to me as well as the Father, as Yahweh. I am king. I am Messiah. I am Savior. I am judge. I am creator. I am Lord. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved. That's what Scripture says. But the one who denies me before men, you reject Christ... Oh, I'll do it my way. I don't want him to be the master and lord of my life. I want to do my own thing. That, that's how you not confess Christ. You reject his demands. There will be consequences. Um, then you will be denied. You die, you breathe your last, last breath, and you stand before Jesus Christ, the judge. And you're either consigned to hell forever based on your attitude toward Jesus Christ, or you are welcomed into heaven because you have embraced his gospel and you have embraced him as Savior and Lord and you did it in this lifetime. No one will escape that judgment. That's why scripture says and pleads the book of Hebrews, today, today is the, the, the day of decision. Today. Don't wait till tomorrow and lose your soul for eternity. Bow the knee to Christ. Verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, 
You can be a Jesus denier for a while when you hear about him, and then it will be forgiven him if you get saved, if you repent. I was like that for 18 years. Heard about Jesus. Didn't want it. I knew exactly what it meant. One of my relatives kept asking me, so I've told you about Jesus. Do you believe everything I've told you about Jesus? Yeah. Do you believe that he is the Savior? Yeah. Do you believe he's the only way to heaven? Yep. Do you believe he's God and one with the Father? Yep. Do you believe that if you die rejecting him, you'll go to hell? Yep. So you believe all that about Jesus? Yep. Do you want to pray and receive Jesus right now? Nope. For three years I did that. I knew. Why? Because I did not want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I wanted to be the Lord of my life. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, can be forgiven if they eventually repent. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. What does that mean? Let's go on to the last two verses, 11 and 12. People misuse this verse all the time. What's the key to true religion? Fearing God the Father, professing Jesus Christ, and then trusting the Spirit. That's the last point, verses 11 and 12. So Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit. You can't have true religion. You can't know me apart from the Spirit. You can't know the Father apart from being committed to me. And that's why you've got to embrace the triune God that's revealed in Scripture. What does it mean, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven? That's an unforgivable sin. It's an unpardonable sin. People get worked up about that. Oh, have I committed? I'm afraid that I've committed the pardonable sin. I have guilt about it. Well, then that means you haven't committed that sin because if you did, you wouldn't have any guilt about it. And there's lots of wrong views about what's being said here. There are parallel or similar passages in Mark and Matthew. This is a little different circumstance. But we know from the New Testament, even the Old Testament, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? He's the revealer. So if I were to summarize it, God, the Father, is the creator. Jesus is the Savior. The Holy Spirit is the revealer. Those are their main distinct roles. How does God reveal truth to humanity? He always does it 100% of the time. Through his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth. Whether it's information given to a living prophet who is speaking truth and then he died and it was never written down. Or God is revealing truth from heaven and he moves on a prophet or an apostle to write that truth down in scripture. He is using the Holy Spirit as the conduit, as the one who reveals the truth. So one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, he is the revealer of divine truth. He is the revealer of Special revelation from God. There is no heavenly information, special revelation, eternal truth, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth. What does that look like for us today? It's right here. It's the Bible. It's Scripture. This is what God has said, and the the Holy Spirit has revealed that for us. And so what Jesus is saying, part of what he's saying here, if you want to know what true religion is, be discerning, have nothing to do with false superficial religion of the Pharisees, And embrace the fundamentals by first fearing God, your creator, who is also your judge. Bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who is the God-man in fulfillment of scripture. And give proper due to the Holy Spirit, who is also God. And he is the revealer of all divine truth. Did you know that everything we know that is true about God the Father, the Holy Spirit, is the one who has revealed that? And the same is also true. Everything you know about Jesus Christ was revealed by the Holy Spirit. 
So in the end, you hear truth about Jesus Christ, the gospel, he's the Lord, I need to bow the knee. And in the end, at your last breath, you put your face, your fist in God's face, and you reject everything you heard. You reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. What have you done? You have rejected all the revelation that the Spirit of God has given to you. You haven't just rejected Jesus. You have rejected the revealer, the Holy Spirit. To reject the gospel is to reject the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who revealed the gospel. So to reject the gospel is to reject the Holy Spirit. And if you reject the Holy Spirit and reject the gospel and you breathe your last and you die, you go into your sins. You enter the next life with unforgiven sin. You cannot go into heaven with unforgiven sin. So what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It is rejecting divine revelation given by the Spirit. Rejecting God's truth. Rejecting the gospel. Ultimately rejecting the Bible. And what it says. That is unforgivable. There's no second chance after you die. There is no purgatory after you die. There is no soul sleep after you die. There's no reincarnation after you die. After death... Every man, every woman, every child dies once and then the judgment, says Hebrews 9. And you breathe your last and you are standing literally before Jesus Christ as judge. Did you embrace my revealed truth given through the Holy Spirit regarding me and the gospel and God the Father? That is the basis of eternal judgment. Hence, verse 11, when they bring you, and he's talking primarily to his apostles and disciples, the inner circle, when they bring you before the synagogues, that's the Jews, this doesn't, this is not, Jesus is not talking to us here. We don't have synagogues where we live. You're not going to be dragged before a synagogue your entire life. This was historical. This, this was immediate. This was the immediate audience. He's warning the apostles. You're going to be arrested on behalf of me. You're, don't fear men. Proclaim me. Don't give in. Don't cave like Judas will do. In six months, you're going to get arrested, taken to the synagogues. You're going to be interrogated. You're going to be beaten. You can read all this in the book of Acts. It happened. This is prophetic. The rulers and authorities, the Jewish rulers and authorities, don't worry. Don't worry about what you are to say or how you're to speak in your defense or what you are to say. Why? Because the Spirit of God, the revealer of truth, will teach you apostles and disciples. John and Peter, Acts chapter 4. The Gospel of John 14, 15, and 16, he will, he will bring to remembrance everything I taught you. He's talking to the apostles. And, the, and that's what the Holy Spirit did. He helped the apostles. He helped them in the face of death. Eleven of the twelve apostles were murdered because on behalf of their testimony of Christ. Paul was murdered because of his testimony for Christ. And yet the Holy Spirit did help them, comforted them. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. So that is true religion. Let me close with this. So probably the main imperative in this passage for all of us is how to know true religion, embrace true religion, and know the God of the universe, and not be subject to his coming judgment, but rather being welcomed into heaven as a child of God, totally forgiven of all your sins because you know Jesus Christ Personally, he is your escort to heaven. So how do you know that you fear God? Because that's the main imperative. Well, here are some signs maybe that you can evaluate yourself. And yeah, I'm not sure if I fear God properly or not. Well, here you go. You have guilt over your sin. 
That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You're bothered by sin. You're bothered by your sin. It makes you uncomfortable. It frustrates you. You have a sensitive conscience. That's what that means. God's made you holy. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's a good sign. Then you confess that sin. God, forgive me. If you don't have ongoing guilt about sin, then your conscience is seared, or maybe you're not a believer at all. You're self-deceived. So that's a good sign that you fear God. You have guilt over sin. You're disgusted with sin. You're disgusted with yourself. Uh, Also, here's something positive uh, that you fear God. You love Jesus. You love Jesus. He is your best friend. He is your master. He is your Lord. He's your elder brother. He's your coming king. You love him more than anybody else. You're not afraid to talk about him, worship him, pray to him. It's all about Christ. So you have guilt over sin. You love Jesus. Uh, And third is you welcome and submit to revelation from the Spirit. What does that mean? You love the Bible. You love scripture. You love learning. You love applying it. You lean upon it. It's food for your soul. It's our meat and our milk. And when you new, learn new truths or you're rebuked by a new truth, you welcome it. Thank you, Lord. My, my thinking was wrong. I had one of those moments this week. It's like, wow, I have been thinking the wrong thing for, is it 30 years on that verse? 30, I could blame it on somebody else because they taught me that. But it's like, wow, thank you, Lord, for correcting me. That's embarrassing. Got to go back and erase all those sermons I preached. But anyway. So you welcome and submit to the truth of the Bible. You're not embarrassed by it. You don't try to tweak it. You don't try to allegorize it. You welcome it as is. The living word of God. Those are good signs that you fear God. So let's go to this holy, awesome God, creator of the universe, judge of every soul, and for those who embrace Jesus Christ, Savior. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Uh, Just the privilege and opportunity to... Look to your word, to your revelation. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who you used to give revelation to humanity, to us as sinners, and the Holy Spirit even helps us understand it. And we know that the Holy Spirit helps us apply it to our life, God, so we need that help. We also thank you for the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. And Father, thank you for you, for revealing yourself and adopting us into your family through Jesus Christ and the gospel and caring for us and loving us and providing for us and being so patient with us. God, you are a good God. We worship you today. We count it a great privilege and we thank you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.